Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 42 and 43. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are, my, you are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word, and we pray, send your spirit, give us wisdom, give us understanding, help us not just to be hearers of it, but to be doers of it. Pray that you help us to apply the truth in it today to our lives, that we might be the saints you've called us to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Today we're back in the Psalms, and we've been here for most of the fall. Uh, last week, uh, my friend Jeff was preaching on Hebrews 2, which was a reflection on Psalm 8. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43. But I want to remind you that the Psalms really are, for the, the history of the church, for the past 2,000 years, have been a huge, wonderful source of encouragement and blessing to the church of God. They really are, in a sense for us, a companion in our spiritual walk of faith. They provide for us sort of a guide in, in our desire and our longing to know God, to know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Today we're going to be looking at, like I said, Psalm 42, which is in what's called Book 2 of the entire book of Psalms. So Book 2 is Psalms 42 through uh, 78. Now, when you, you've noticed, uh, if you were reading in your scriptures or in your Bible, that 
Psalm 42 says that it was written by the sons of Korah. So the first eight psalms of book two, Psalms 42 through, what's that, 48, 49, are all written by the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were Levites who were sort of the temple singers and were oversaw uh, singing in the temple as well as just being in the temple in general. They also kept the temple gates and they were guardians of the Ark of the, uh, Ark of the Covenant. And most scholars include Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together because as you notice when we are reading it, there's a number of refrains that repeat uh, in both Psalms, right? You, hear, you heard, why are you, why are you, uh, why are you cast down, O my soul? Both, psalm, both in verse 5, verse 11, and then again in Psalm 43, verse 6. Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Again, multiple times in both psalms, these refrains are, are throughout these psalms. And this has led scholars, this and a number of other things, have led scholars to take these psalms together as one psalm. But in the history of the church, in the, in the history of putting the Bible together, um, these psalms have been, been separated out. So, but we're going to look at them today as one psalm. And this really is a psalm of a lament, which expresses really deep sorrow, deep grief, and really the distress of the psalmist. And these psalms of lament often question God's actions and understanding in the face of suffering and trials. And the author here is, like I said, is most likely a temple servant whose heart is downcast over sort of this deep longing for God who seems far, far away from him. From, from the psalm, it appears that the author is no longer in Jerusalem where the temple is. And as you read through the psalm, it seems like he's in the north of Israel, a few hundred miles from Jerusalem. And we're not told why he's not at the temple, but commentators have guessed for a number of different reasons that maybe he's just simply in the north away from the temple uh, at his home. Maybe he had business to take care of. Maybe he's in the north because he's being carried into exile by the Babylonians. So this would have been, some people think that this would have been written after Israel was, uh, Israelites were carried away into Babylon. But another possibility for the location of this psalm is that when you look at the history of David, we know that David was in this region of Israel when Absalom led a rebellion, his son led a rebellion uh, with the people of God, and they, they rose up against David, and David and his uh, supporters all fled to this part of northern Israel. Maybe that's why this temple singer is there. Regardless of the reason, he's far from home, and his soul is deeply troubled. He's suffering, and he's crying out because he's in a very, very desperate situation. He's longing for God, and his soul feels heavy and dry because God seems distant from him, and he feels as if God has abandoned him. As a Christian, I can readily attest to that feeling and longing at times in my Christian life where God seemed absent and far away. You know, I think of times when I was living in Ukraine, the first couple years in particular, it was hard to come together with the people of God in worship when I didn't understand the language. And God seemed far away. It was hard to connect with people. It was hard to connect with God through a sermon that was being preached in Russian or Ukrainian that I couldn't understand. And often my, far, my, my heart came away feeling heavy and distant, from God because when I was gathered with the people of God, there wasn't any connection with them. 
When we go through extended periods of time where God seems distant, it can be really devastating for our hearts, difficult for our hearts to grasp. And this is what this psalmist is just lamenting the fact that his heart is dry, that God seems far away. John Piper says it like this. He says, the Bible's clear witness is that for various and deeply good reasons, God sometimes ordains dismaying dark nights of the soul to descend on us, to descend on his children for redemptive purposes. So that God sometimes brings these dark nights of the soul upon his people for, for whatever good reason he has. We may not see or know that reason, but God has brought that to us for various times. And if you have lived the Christian life long enough, most likely you will experience these times of lament, of sadness, of feeling a distance between you and God, feeling like God isn't there when you need him to be there. This psalmist is experiencing this dark night of the soul. And in this psalm, he gives us three causes that has led him to this point. And he gives us some cures to help us get through those times of lament when we feel far from God. The three causes of his soul being downcast are, and I'm going to look at these three today, are loss of community, ridicule from his enemies, and being physically depleted. Now, Psalm 1, or verse 1 begins with this lovely, beautiful simile. One of the first verses I ever memorized in Scripture when I first became a believer. As, and it starts as this. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my, so my soul pants for you, my God. The deer is the psalmist here. And the dry riverbed is, is representative of God. God isn't present. It's dry. The psalmist is dry. The God is absent. He's not present. He can't be found. The empty riverbed also, it gives us a picture, in a sense, of the psalmist's heart. He's dry. He's shriveled up. He's far from God. He's longing for the presence of God. His soul is yearning after God. And yet God seems to be not near, not to be close. Those feelings of closeness, those feelings of union, those feelings of love, of passion for God are gone. They've slipped away. But look, this psalmist is no biblical fool. He understands that only through fellowship with God will the joy of life return, be restored. As one commentator has said, God's presence is not a luxury that we can do without, but rather his presence is absolutely necessary for our existence and for joy in this life. Like, we cannot live without God's presence. When we have those periods of lamenting, of feeling that God is far from us, where our souls are in distress, we need God. And this psalmist is going to walk us through how we can get back into that relationship with God. And it takes time. As John Piper said, it took him a year before he came out of this dark night of the soul where God's presence just seemed far from him. So let's first look at the first thing the psalmist notes that the first cause I said of the psalmist's spiritual depression is sort of this loss of community. He's struggling deeply, so he starts remembering. He's struggling. God feels a far away, so he starts remembering. He's looking back fondly at his past. And in verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. 
He remembers what joy he had participating with the people of God, both in worship and in these festival celebrations. And these festival celebrations happened throughout the year of, of Israelites' worship throughout the year. There were certain festivals that they celebrated yearly, and they were often. And this psalmist is thinking about it, and he's yearning for that, that experience that he had, that closeness that he had with the people of God and with God that has now been taken away from him. And he is yearning and longing for that deeply in his heart. Some of us have had times when we didn't have access to worship, right? In a sense, we were separated from community. Maybe we chose to, but sometimes things happen outside of our control that we, we get separated for a period of time from the community that God has brought us to. And this, the psalmist is, in a sense here, just like we would, is experiencing homesickness. He's longing for community. He's longing for God, and his heart is heavy and, and weighing him down. You know, I think sometimes... When we read this psalm, or at least when I do, uh, we struggle with really identifying with the psalmist here. And I, and I think that's because we often don't put the same priority that the psalmist, that this author has in worship, right? Worship for us, is, we look at often as secondary. And I, why is that? I, I think it's because we value our individualism, our individualistic culture much more than a teaching of scripture on this subject. You see, almost every year in various polls that try to get sort of a, a picture uh, or the pulse of the American church, we're told that most Americans don't believe they need to be in communal worship, that they don't need to be in community to worship the living and true God. For many of us, our worship community is, like I said, secondary because we think that we can be good spiritually, that we can be good spiritual persons all by ourselves that we don't need other people to help encourage us in this walk, in our walk with God. We believe we're enough, and we can thrive by ourselves. And unfortunately, most of that comes simply from living in our culture, the American culture, the Western culture, with this emphasis on individualism. But reality is a lot bleaker than that. We need community, Scripture confirms it over and over. I think if we were to ask you, how well do you thrive when you separate yourself from your friends? How well do you thrive in life when you isolate yourself from others? And I think all of us would agree that we don't thrive well. We don't flourish in those situations. And if you don't believe me, just think back a couple years and check yourself. How are you doing during the pandemic when you were forced to isolate? And as most of you know, we can go back and look. Americans, Westerners, the world, it didn't do really well being forced to isolate. We really, really struggled. You know, if you think you can thrive as an individual Christian, not connected to the body or not connected to the church, then you're simply deceiving yourself and falling prey again to our Western cultural emphasis on individualism. Church, we need, to both, we need both corporate and individual worship. You can't have one without the other. You need both of them to thrive. You need both of them to succeed. You need both of them to flourish. And so here's the thing. By all means, study and pray in your home. Study and pray at the beach. Study and pray at the mountainside. Do those things as an individual. Do them within your family. But don't neglect corporate worship. Don't come away thinking, I don't need the church. I don't need worship. I am sufficient in and of myself. I can worship God alone. 
Let me just tell you, that is not the teaching of Scripture, and that never has been. It's a teaching of our culture. It's a teaching sometimes that we want to adopt and hold for ourselves, but it's not the teaching of Scripture. We need community. We need community to thrive in our relationship with God. Look, real spirituality expresses itself in a longing for God. This, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God. God has created us to know him and to enjoy him in community. We fail sometimes when we go to the Old Testament, we look at the Old Testament, and everything's around the temple. You go to the first five books of Moses, everything's around the temple. You go to the prophets, everything is around the temple. We come to the New Testament, we look, and we're like, oh, where's the church? Well, it's, it's everywhere there as well, but then we make excuses, and we sideline the church for whatever reason and say we don't need it. But Scripture, again, I want to affirm this. Scripture is clear. We need the body. We must be committed to the body of Christ, to the church, to community, in order to thrive and flourish as believers. Look, this opening psalm, the opening of this psalm challenges us to seek communion together with our living God. And so let me just ask you a few questions. Do you strive after God daily? Do you have a passion for Him? And I think most of you would say, yes, I strive after God daily. I'm spending time in his word. I'm praying. I long for him. But is that passion reflected in your commitment to community? Or is that passion simply an individualistic relationship between you and God? And the challenge for us, brothers and sisters, is to take our passion for God and include that within our community, not to separate it out as two different things. They have to come together for us to grow strong in our faith. Second thing I want us to see from this psalm, that the psalmist is experiencing really a spiritual depression and dryness, is that he's experiencing the spiritual depression or dryness because he's being ridiculed by his enemies. Now, look, the text doesn't tell us who these enemies are, but notice that they are different from the many enemies that you read in the Psalms. That is, these enemies aren't trying to kill the psalmist. They're simply ridiculing him. They're taunting him. They're making fun of him. And while they're doing that, they're doing that to call into question the sovereignty and the goodness of God in the psalmist's life. The text says that they mock the psalmist with harsh words of where is your God? All day long he hears this refrain in his head, it's running through his head, where is your God? Which is a painful reminder to this author that God is absent and that his heart is dry, that his heart is distant from God. And these insults cause the author to question the presence of God in his own life. In verse 9, he cries out, God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then in verse 2 in chapter 43, you are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? All these, this, this taunting, these ridicules are, questioning, are causing the psalmist to question the presence of God in his life and the goodness of God. Look, he's just being honest here with how he feels. I don't know if you're used to uh, somebody's talking or the psalmist talking about God rejecting him, God forgetting him, feeling abandoned by God. Does that sound strange to you, those kinds of words, when you're talking about God? 
I hope not, because the writers of the Psalms show us the depth of their hearts through admitting their doubts, through admitting their fears, through admitting their complaints against God, they're feeling abandoned, struggling with God. They're not afraid to admit that. They're not afraid to show that. They're not afraid to bring those complaints to God because they know God is big enough to handle their complaints. Look, I don't think we so often try to spin everything. And, and what I mean by that is we try to spin everything to say that, you know, everything is good all the time. You know, we live in a broken world populated by broken people, and it's obvious that everything isn't good all the time. It's obvious that there isn't a silver lining on, under every cloud, right? I think we can all agree with that. We can be authentic with God about how we feel, and we should grow in being authentic with one another, with our fears, with our doubts, with our complaints. There's a place you need to have someone who's safe to do that with. But there's a place to be authentic with God, with the way we feel, and to be authentic with one another. However, unfortunately, most of us try to hide our fears, try to hide our doubts. Or worse, when we have shared them with others, our concerns have been bashed or just simply minimized. This reminds me of the story of Job. Do you remember, do you remember the story? Job lost everything. His sons died. His possessions are carried away or destroyed. He's covered head to toe in some form of a painful skin disease. Do you remember how his friends responded to him? They came to encourage him. The idea is they came to encourage Job. They came to sit with him in his pain. But what did they say to Job? That's a rhetorical question. Think about it. But what did they say to Job? They simply said, Job, you've sinned. All this has happened to you because you've sinned. Confess your sins and God will heal you. Was that a true statement on the part of his friends? No, it was not. It wasn't true. That hadn't, wasn't true of Job at all. But we do sim something similar today when we tell those struggling with doubt or struggling with fear or feeling distant from God or in the middle of this crisis of faith that it's going to be all right. You'll get through this. You got this. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I do this. That's one of my first responses when I hear someone, particularly my wife. Oh, Karen, you've got this. You're, it's going to be okay. But it's not all right for those who are struggling. It's not our job to minimize their pain or discomfort simply because we feel uncomfortable with the words they're sharing with us. Instead, trying, instead of trying to fix the problem, sit down with that person who's struggling with fear or doubt, who's in this crisis. Sit down with them and listen to them. Hear them. Pray with them. And then when you leave, continue to pray with them. You're not there to minimize their problem or simply to fix their problem. You're there to listen. You're there to to pray. And that's what I would encourage us to do when we come to one another, when we come to God to be honest with our feelings, listen to each other. For us to listen to one another, you don't need to be ashamed. We all have these feelings. We may try to cover them up, but we all struggle with them at one time or another. We all have the same feelings or similar feelings to the psalmist here in 42 and 43. 
But here's another thing with this, right? The psalmist doesn't really go into this, but maybe worse than the taunts or this ridicule from our enemies is that our ultimate enemy, Satan, constantly condemns us, right? We struggle with his condemnation. We've all experienced this at some time, I think. Thoughts of, you're not good enough. You're not loved. If God loved me, he would provide a spouse. If he cared for me, he would provide friends. If he was for me, he would give me a great job. These kinds of subtle taunts or ridicule that are running through our head often can discourage us and may cause us to think that God has left us to our own devices, that God isn't for us, that he doesn't love us. But brothers and sisters, Scripture is clear. When you're struggling with these thoughts coming through your head constantly, Scripture is clear if you are in Christ, of what your standing is. And I love this passage in Romans 8 from Paul. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear what Paul is saying? God is more than for us. He has given us himself, and he has promised that no trial, no hardship, no pain will ever separate us from his love that we are given in Christ, his son. Remember the promises of God and hold them close to your heart. When you're struggling with those doubts, when you're struggling with those fears, when you feel far from God, come and grab hold of those promises and cling to them because they can give you hope. They will bring hope because they remind us of the God that we serve, who he really is, not how we feel about him, but who he really is. The last cause of the psalmist's spiritual dryness and depression is that he's really just physically depleted. You know, Martin Lord Jones, who was a British pastor in the mid-20th century and was a doctor before becoming a pastor, has a great set of sermons on this passage and on spiritual depression. And I don't know if JC's here, but I have to give a shout out to him for reminding me about those sermons. Uh, I went to them for this section uh, while I was going through here. But Lloyd-Jones noted that the psalmist is not sleeping or eating here. If you go through, he's not sleeping and eating. In verse 3, we hear the author say that my tears have been my food day and night. And in verse 8, God's song is with him at night. He's not sleeping and he has no appetite, which are basically clinical signs of depression. Lloyd-Jones tells us that we must deal with our physical issues in order to help us with our spiritual issues. That is, we're interconnected. We're both physical and spiritual beings. You have to deal with the physical aspect of your symptoms if you hope to deal with the spiritual aspect of your depression. You can't ignore it. You can't act like it doesn't exist. We must not just So, yeah, so you can't ignore these things. You can't, you have to take them seriously. If you're not sleeping, you're not eating, you're struggling with depression, you can't just say, oh, let me pray harder. Let me read my Bible more. No, you may need to see a psychologist or a counselor to find some help with that depression. And that then will help you with your spiritual depression or vice versa. You can't separate, yikes, I knew I was going to do that one of these days. You can't separate these things out. They, They go together. They're interconnected and they impact us whether we want it to or not. And so trying to hide or deny that you're depressed 
isn't going to work because you're going to feel it physically and you're going to feel it spiritually because we're both kinds of people. I'm just moving on time-wise. And the first cure for the downcast heart is to preach truth to God yourself. So preach the truth of God to ourselves. So this was the, the, psalm, the psalmist says, the first cure is to preach the truth of who God is to yourself. Have you ever thought before, who is the person that you talk to the most? Or who's the person you listen to the most? Look, it's obvious whether we like to realize it or not, the person we talk to the most is ourselves, and the person we listen to the most is ourselves. I don't know if anybody that, that surprises anyone, but most of us are constantly carrying on conversations in our head. It only becomes a problem when we start talking out loud about those conversations, right? But we're constantly carrying on conversations in our head with ourselves, and we're listening to ourselves about what we're saying about ourselves. Some of that talking can be, and listening can be good, but often many of us get stuck in listening to negative thoughts and emotions which can deeply impact us. So instead of just listening to ourselves, we need to speak to ourselves in the same way that God speaks to us in Scripture. We need to remind ourselves who God is, what He's done for us, and what He's promised us. This is exactly what the writer began to do to address the spiritual depression. He starts by asking himself a question. And this is a question that he's asking internally. He's not speaking this to somebody else. He's asking this question to himself. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then he starts preaching to himself. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So he begins first by remembering that God is Savior. And he says, God is my rock, my refuge. And in verse 4 and in later in chapter 43, God is my exceeding joy. He's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself to get out of this spiritual depression. He's reminding himself constantly, who is this God that I serve? What are his promises for me? Now, when he's telling himself this, is he feeling that at the moment? No. Verse 5, verse 11, verse 6, and chapter 43, he's telling himself over and over. He's needing to remind himself it's not a one and done deal. No, he does not stop preaching truth to himself. But this drives him to his knees, drives him to Scripture. So even in his pains, even in feeling abandoned from God, he doesn't throw in a towel. He doesn't quit. Instead, he recalls to himself over and over who it is that he serves. And I want to remind us, the same goes for us. We're going to struggle. We're going to doubt. We're going to have fears. It doesn't mean quit. It doesn't mean throw in a towel and give up. No, what it should do for us is drive you back to the Scriptures, drive you to your knees to call out to God and to listen to Him, to come to those Scriptures and be reminded of who you are as sons and daughters of the King. Look, we have so much more at our disposal than the psalmist did because we have the Son of God who came in the flesh to give himself to us. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The psalmist didn't have that promise yet. 
Spurgeon takes that verse out of John. He says this. Charles Spurgeon says this about John 6.40. No day shall ever dawn on an heir of grace. Who's an heir of grace? The saints of God. Who's an heir of grace? Those who belong to Christ. Those who are united to Christ in faith. And he says, no, no day shall ever dawn on an heir of grace and find him altogether forsaken of his Lord. The Lord reigneth, and as a sovereign, he will with authority command mercy to be reserved for his chosen. God is waiting to, dis- to extend mercy and forgiveness, whether that's because we've sinned or simply because we need his presence more and more. We are struggling and we're feeling far from him. Come to him with your heart's desires. Come to him with those feelings and lay them before him. Brothers and sisters, arm yourselves with the truth of the promises of who God is, what God has done, and what he's pledged himself to do. Do you know his promises for you? Can you quote them? Do you know where to find them in scripture? Have you committed them to your heart so that when the tough days of doubt and those hard days come, when loneliness arises, you know that you have the weapons of God at hand to help you deal with those emotions, to help you deal with those feelings. One promise that I love, that I've committed to many, many years ago, and it's a great song to, to sing as well, it's, it's from Isaiah 41, and it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. This is his promise to us. We must learn them. We must know them and apply them to our lives when we're struggling. And to be honest with you, apply them to our lives when we're not struggling. But certainly when we're struggling, know the promises of God because they can cure spiritual depression. They can cure a sick heart. Lastly, we have something the psalmist didn't have. We can preach the gospel to our own hearts. Of course, the psalmist didn't know he, that he, and he couldn't experience the fullness of Christ in the same way that we do. But if you're struggling with a dry, heavy heart and you feel abandoned by God, his love feels far away and his presence is distant from you, distant from you then come to this psalm and read it in the light of Jesus. Read it through the eyes of Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who's truly abandoned by God. He's the one who's tormented and ridiculed by his enemies. He's the one who did not just feel abandoned by God, but was forsaken by God. And why was he forsaken? So that we would never have to know that abandonment he experienced. So that we might know the depth and the breadth and the height of God's love, of God's forgiveness and God's mercy. Jesus bore all of our failings, all of our shortcomings, so that God would never give up on you and me. God punished him so that we could receive his love and his eternal covenantal commitment to us. Church, I encourage you, learn to preach Christ to yourself. Remind yourself what he's done. If you're not sure how to do that, I'll tell you what Martin Luther said. Go to Romans 8 and start there and begin learning those promises in Romans 8. Romans 8, and reminding yourself who you are in Christ. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. Preach his promises. Remember who he is and what he's done. 
because he will bring you through your spiritual depression to a better place, to a stronger place than you were before you fell into this sense of doubt and fear and longing for God. He alone will meet your every need. Let's pray. Great and mighty God, Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have experienced for us abandonment, ridicule, pain, suffering, that we might know the truth of how you relate to us, that we're loved, uh, that we are cared for, that you are always with us. Even when our emotions are telling us something different, we have the promises that you will never leave us or forsake us. Remind us of those truths this day, O God, that we might live as people in community with one another, encouraging one another, lifting one another up to the truths of the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.